Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival and artistic director for Doc NYC. On this episode, I interview Yancey Ford, whose documentary debut is Strong Island. The film focuses on the death of Yancey's brother, William Ford Jr., in 1992. William was a 24-year-old black man shot and killed by a 19-year-old white man named Mark Riley. The shooting took place during a dispute at a car garage on Long Island. After the murder, when the Ford family was grieving their son, they were harassed by anonymous phone calls and a mysterious car parked in front of their house. Yancey narrates the film. Having grown up in the South, where the cops and the Klan were one and the same, my parents didn't turn to the police for protection. They had already felt that the police had turned their own son into the prime suspect in his own murder. So not only is the phone ringing, not only is there a car across the street, but there is the growing sense that the DA is going to actually let this kid get away with murder. The killer Mark Riley was brought before a grand jury that declined to press charges. That lack of resolution tore up Yancey's family over the years. The film explores the long-term legacy of William's death. Strong Island had its world premiere in January at the Sundance Film Festival and is now streaming on Netflix. The film was named to the Doc NYC shortlist, and earlier this week, it won the Best Documentary Prize at the Gotham Awards. When William Ford was killed, Yancey was an art student at Hamilton College. After graduating, he did work on film crews and did metalwork at a foundry before he saw an ad for a job opening at the PBS documentary series POV. He was hired by POV's head at the time, Kara Mertes, and eventually became its series producer. As a transgendered man, Yancey took inspiration from the growing movement of queer filmmakers. The first documentary to impress him was Tons Untied in 1989. That film embraced a poetic style in giving voice to queer black men. I was mute, tongue-tied, burdened by shadows and silence. Now I speak, and my burden is lightened, lifted, free. The filmmaker of Tons Untied was Marlon Riggs, a black, HIV-positive video artist whose work became controversial in the culture wars over public arts funding. I asked Yancey to describe how the film affected him. When I saw Tongues Untied, it was black, queer, unapologetic. Not a lot else in the culture at that time. Not a lot else in the culture in that time that, you know, and, of course, as a result, under attack, right? The the, the now infamous Freudian slip of, of Strom Thurmond, um, you know, sort of railing on the floor of the Senate against Tongues United um, uh, rather than Tongues Untied um, always makes me smile. Um, and height of the culture wars height of the culture wars. And, um, you know, it was it was this thing that was just, it just sort of landed. And, you know, I, 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 what I loved about it is that it didn't explain itself, right? It, it assumed, Riggs 
and in his entire body of work, assumed that he had a right to A, produce it, and B, to exist. Mm. Right? Very, very simple, yet um, on some levels very revolutionary um, in that, you know, assuming that I have a right to be here and assuming that I have a right to tell my own story, um, you know, are, are sort of the foundations of, of any art practice and really influential for me in terms of, you know, sort of not necessarily arriving at a point where I needed someone else's permission to make Strong Island. I needed to arrive at a point where I felt ready to make the film. Um, and that that point happened in uh, very early in 2006. And so am I right that uh, Tons on Tide was broadcast on POV? Yeah, Tons on Tide was broadcast on POV and there was a firestorm, um, um, you know, uh, of threats to pull funding. Um, it was one of the, I think, one of the first major crises in public media um, where content had brought down the wrath of political scrutiny. And it was the it was one of the first, but it was not the last. I want to ask what your perception from those years is of the diversity in documentary makers. I think in the documentary community, we like to think of ourselves as a more diverse place than Hollywood. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, when you really get down to it, um, the representation of voices is still awfully skewed. Yeah. That's one of the really sobering things about, um, you know, those years. When I was at POV, um, with the exception of, of uh, an intern who was hired for a short period of time, I was the only African-American on staff for 10 years. Um, and to have realized that during the course of my tenure there. Of a staff about how many people? Of a, of a staff of about, you know, 15, 15 or 16 oh. full-time staff. Um, you know, it was it was pretty sobering. Not only that, I have to say, if I'd be at a documentary mixer, whether it's a film festival or an IFP market, or you look around the room, it's not only a POV, there weren't many other African-Americans or any minorities exactly anywhere 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 not in not in not in positions of gatekeeping um, not in you know senior positions um, you know uh, you know in acquisitions in, in anywhere um, and and also on, on the filmmaking side you know I can like Linda Good Bryant who made you know I met her when she and Laura Poitras made Flag Wars um, that was one of the first films that the Diverse Voices Project funded um, Marco Williams um, who did Two Towns of Jasper um, with um, with Whitney Dow, Marlon Riggs. But even even looking over the history of, of POV, there weren't many filmmakers of any color, um, you know, represented in, in that. Um, I would guess maybe a good number of films about African-Americans sure. and other minorities made by white filmmakers. Yeah, exactly. And actually one of, one of the... Um, I remember one of the most interesting projects that I worked on was um, was making sort of a spreadsheet of films um, films by like films about African Americans by African Americans and films by African Americans by others films about Latinos by Latinos films about Latinos by others and the numbers were you know it's like the the number of people from these communities produ producing work about um, you know, these communities was extremely low. And that was reflected, like you said, at when you would go to IFP, um, you know, or, or any number of functions or, or festivals um, or markets, it, it would just, you know, it, it became really obvious that this community also has a problem.
Yancey's brother William was killed in 1992. I asked Yancey when he started to think of the case as a film. I started thinking of this as a film um, tangentially in 1996 after I'd taken the production workshop at Third World Newsreel. I'd been studying photography and sculpture and performance um, as an undergraduate and doing sculpture um, uh, you know, and, and metalwork um, you know, for a living, um, but I hadn't actually worked a film camera. Right, and and there's something very different about framing um, a still photograph and learning how to frame a moving image. Yeah. Right, and I'll never forget. I think I don't know. Maybe um, newsreel was still on Eighth Avenue, and I was on I don't know Eighth between or Thirty Fourth between Eighth and Ninth or Thirty Third or Thirty Sixth. I don't know, but I, I remember the day that I I looked through the viewfinder of the sixteen millimeter and saw for the first time the framing that I liked, and there were people moving through it, and I said shit. That's what it looks like. This is what I want. Mm-hmm. And um, it was six years later that I got the job at POV um, in 2002. And four years after that, that I first shared with my colleagues, or some of my colleagues, that I had had a brother who had been murdered and that I was thinking about making a film about him. Um, and, and, and how would you explain keeping that to yourself for four years? Sure. Um, you know, I think that there's a lot of um, stigma that comes along with having had a, a member of your family murdered. Um, and I use that word deliberately. Um, having had a member of your family murdered and having that uh, perpetrator of that crime not go to trial. Because um, it essentially indicts your dead loved one for their own death. Um, and you know, when my brother was killed, there was no social media. There was no. There was no. There were no cell phone cameras. There was no internet. There was nothing. There were petitions. There were you know knocking on doors. There were phone calls and letters, but that was it. There were fewer than three thousand words in the local paper. And then, after all those avenues had been exhausted, there was the silence of the failure um, of the judicial system to to provide any um, due process, um, in my opinion. Um, in terms of questioning the reasonable fear of the person who shot and killed my brother. And because it was loaded with all of these things, the silence, the shame, the fact that, you know, like, yes, he was murdered. No, it wasn't gang-related. No, it wasn't drug-related. No, the person who killed him didn't go to jail, right? It it opens up a a longer conversation that I I honestly um, didn't necessarily want to have at work. You know, I, I had that conversation with, you know, with my partner um, and, you know, with a few friends um, and my, obviously my, my, my family, but, um, and I, my family, my family and I shared the experience, we didn't necessarily talk about it, but at least we had it in common. Um, to bring that kind of knowledge of, of something so personal um, and, and so unresolved into, into a place where I spent so much time, um, you know, at the very beginning, it, it was it was complicated. I didn't necessarily want it to be at work as well. Um, but, you know, I got to a point where the silence... Um, I'm curious now, like, was it a very deliberate moment when you brought this up with your work colleagues? Yeah, it was a very deliberate moment. I was... Um, uh, so I think that, you know, everyone's office wife, Betty Cordero, who is the lifeblood of POV, 
um, you know, she was the first person that I told. Um, and, um, you know, it was because she had developed a relationship with my mother mm. who called me at work every day around lunchtime. And Betty, um, you know, with a switch word kicked back to Betty's phone when people would just dial zero mm. instead of dialing extensions. My mother never dialed my extension. My mother <laughs> always dialed zero. And so Betty, um, you know, Betty had, uh, you know, this relationship with my mother and I felt, you know, sort of um, safe enough to share it with her. Um, and, you know, I'd also understood helped her understand why my mother sounded so sad, mm. you know, on, on some occasions when she would call the office. Um, and then the next person that I shared it with was Kara Murdis. Um, and we were at the Sundance Film Festival, uh, and it was January 2006. And I, you know, was sort of at this moment where I realized that I, I had a decision to make, right? And I said, like, I can continue to be someone who helps to shape the culture, right? And in this position of, of gatekeeper, or I can, or I can put this down, and and tell this story that I have, right? And I I went, you know, I proceeded to tell her about my brother's murder, um, and to you know, in the context of this is a project you're thinking of. Well, in in the context of you know, I've been in this job for four years. And I see all of these people who are taking risks, um, who are telling other people's really difficult stories. Mm. Um, and I've got this secret, right? I've got this story. And am I going to continue um, to keep the story to myself? Or am I going to sort of jump the line, right? And, and take the risk that I can turn it into something larger, right? To do the things that I had, that I had been sitting in judgment of people for four years. Um, and you know, try to try to do that, and try to do it as well as as the people um, who had submitted their work to POV. And you know, Kara's response was at the moment like very simply, "What are you waiting for?" You know, and I think that you know everyone at some point has someone ask them, "What are you waiting for?" Mm. Um, but the fact that it was Kara for me at that moment was really meaningful because I had gone through such a process of getting hired at POV. Um, and, you know, I, I felt like I had learned a lot about how to critique film from her. Um, but I also learned about risk taking from her. Um, and the fact that she's that she sort of stated the question very plainly. Um, it was something that I didn't actually have an answer for. There was nothing. There was no reason um, for me to wait. And that's when I started writing about the film. Um, and two years later, I shot my first interview with my mother. Here is Yancey's mother, Barbara Ford, describing the grand jury that heard the case of her son's killer. I looked at the grand jury. I looked around. I saw who was paying attention. Okay, how could you come to a viable decision if you're reading a magazine, if you're doing a crossword puzzle, if you're talking with somebody. I think serving on a, a jury, and particularly a grand jury, is one of the greatest privileges of citizenship in this country. And you shouldn't take it that way based on race, creed, or color. You should judge the content of the evidence presented. 
my feelings were that they just didn't give a damn. And if I die today, tomorrow, or the next day, I will die believing that they didn't care because my son was a young man of color. I will always believe that, always, until the day I die. Today, we're living through a specific cultural moment around the deaths of young black men and women, kind of starting with Trayvon Martin and the rise of the Black Lives Matter and the rise of um, cell phones that uh, that document these things in, in new ways. And I wonder how different today's moment feels to you than what it was like to have had a family experience in a similar vein 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, I'm really glad that we have cell phone cameras and the internet and social media and Black Lives Matter um, for the families who are who are living through these losses now. Um, because I know how much um, isolation helps breed injustice. Um, and it's one of the things about living in the suburbs, right? Um, is that you have limited, you know, like you do what you know, you know, like you write letters, you make phone calls, and when you've exhausted, you know, all of all of those avenues, you go home, right? And and what you take home with you is a sense of having failed, mm. right? Which my mother is very eloquent about in the film. Um, over the over, over the course of the last ten years, right, having um, you know, having seen these deaths become more public because of audio recordings and because of, of cell phone videos and, and seeing the rise of, 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 of social media. I'm, I'm glad that these families have um, the support in the moment and, the, and in the immediate aftermath. Um, part of what I think Strong Island shows is that the need for support is going to go on for much longer than, than most people realize. Mm. Right, like I want people to think about Tamir Rice's mother and sister, and when I think about the fact that Tamir Rice's mother was homeless for a time because she couldn't go back home, she couldn't bring her, she couldn't bring herself to go back home, um, or her or Tamir Rice's sister who was dragged away from him um, on the ground, I want people to think about what they are going to need over the course of the next twenty five years, because that's what Strong Island shows you. Right, it's not. It's not about the day after. It's not about the week after. The month after. The year after. The two years. The four years. It's about the five, ten, fifteen, twenty. These deaths that go unpunished because of our justice system's failure to interrogate reasonable fear, um, they eat away at you. the The implosion is real, right? Um, and so I'm glad that there is a very present tense. You know, ability to 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 gather around these families, but I want folks to remember that it's not just now; it's 20 years from now. And I'm glad that people in the Black community and other communities of color are talking about self-care. Um, you know, I'm someone I think just because of you know, I'm gen Generation X and I have a different relationship to to, to mental health care. Um, you know, I'm someone who was lucky to have access to mental health care after my brother, um, you know, was murdered. Um, and so for, there's there's not that stigma. I, I don't carry that personal stigma. Um, and it's it's good for me to hear people, you know, talking about 
you know, sort of self-care and mental health care sort of in a mainstream way as something that's normal as opposed to something that's outside the norm. Um, you know, this, I, and I think that this moment will also change again, right? Because part of what part of what's happened, I think, Tom, is that we've seen so many people die, right? Like I think about when I saw the Eric Garner tape. Put your hand behind your back. I think about what I like the the sort of sick like the sick feeling that I got when I realized I had just watched a man be choked to death, right? Or Walter Scott, where you hear something and you see this body contorting, and it's almost like a strange dance because there's no tracers, right? It's not like the movies where you can see the evidence of, of bullets, but you, what you see is someone being hit with gunfire, right? I'm worried that we are, we are going to become desensitized to these, um, to these deaths um, because we see them so regularly. Mm. I think that it's important that we remember that there is an actual person whose life is snuffed out in each of these videos. Um, and because of the experience of watching something on you know we often sort of have two layers of remove right we have the 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 video camera that shoots the incident and then we have the device on which we watch the shooting of the video camera right and so it's it's almost like two screens and i worry that 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 distance of two screens is, is somehow going to mute um our sort of human ability to to recognize and remember that that, that is an actual life mm. Um, uh, and I hope that however technology changes over the next five or ten years with cell phone cameras and the internet, I hope that part of what happens is that we, we do not lose the, the, the understanding that human life is actually like a tangible thing in these videos. Now, as you've described, the, the film does document the long-term impact on a family when you started, did you think of that as your mission, or was there part of you that wanted to reinvestigate the case? There was. When I first started, I started with a, with a question of what happened, right? Um, and I got to the answer of what happened pretty quickly. It was really, really obvious what happened. Um, and when I got to that point, I was like, frankly, I was like, shit. Like, I'm asking the wrong question. Right? The question is not what happened. The question is why. Um, and when I, when I shifted to the why, that's when the importance of having you know, my parents and my family begin with my parents, you know, sort of you know, as, as lovebirds in the sixth and seventh grade, um, you know, became important because that's where the family begins. Um, my brother's murder you know, is a thing that, that ruptured this thing. Um, called called the Ford family, but it was important to actually show what had been lost, right? So that's how it affected, um, you know, that's how it affected the film, um, and and the why also, um, you know, allowed me to to in, to interrogate our interrogation, right? It, it allowed me to question the nature of investigation, right? To to ask questions about the questions, right? And and one of the things that I tell people when I get the opportunity is that there are no rhetorical questions in Strong Island. 
when I say, how do you measure the distance of reasonable fear? That is an actual God honest question. Because if you read my brother's autopsy report and you see that there's no evidence of close range firing, and then you read one of the two, um, you know, sort of uh, print media, um, you know, stories about um, the shooting, and you realize that someone claimed that my brother had backed somebody into a corner and was hovering over him, you're like, well, wait a minute. This guy is a witness, and what he's saying he saw is contradicted by the physical evidence. Mm-hmm. How is it that I can see that? But in you know 20 or 22 or 23 or 24 or 25 years ago, you know the police didn't see that. Or if they did, why isn't it being you know sort of explained? Um, you know, um, or how is it being explained? Right. And the fact that grand jury minutes are and, and grand jury um, deliberation files are sealed by law. Right. There is no way for anyone to go back and review the 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 evidence that was presented. Right. The the grand jury makes the, their determination based on the evidence. Fine. But what evidence was presented? What evidence didn't get presented? Um, you know that all became a part of Strong Island when I started asking why, why this, why that. You know, why not William? when so few felony cases um, are resolved in a no true bill, so few, I think there was one-tenth of one percent on the federal level in 1992, it is a rarity in civilian shooting deaths for cases not to go to trial. It is impossible for there not to have been a problem here. And I've had former prosecutors at more than one film festival in more than one place um, stand up in Q&A and say, I was with you know the um, you know uh, DA's office in such and such a city for you know X number of years. Something very wrong happened here. You know, also I think one of the things that we did in the film, and and I and I did it very deliberately, was to be honest about my brother's behavior. Right, my brother went to the garage in the quote-unquote vacuum cleaner incident um, on March nineteenth. Right, and you know this this vacuum cleaner that he picked up. Um, and, you know, in an, in an attempt to be a sort of a tough guy, but wound up dousing himself with, you know, with the water that was inside the shop vac. Um, and, and we hear the recitation of events of the vacuum cleaner night from the detective. So you don't hear it from me, you hear it from him. Um, you know, I was really um, determined to have that in the film because I don't think there's any such thing as a perfect victim. And I think that the thing that isn't asked by the police, and it's sort of glaringly obvious to me, is if William scared you to death on March 19th, why didn't you call the police? And I, sort of period, full stop. Hmm. If you're scared to death on March 19th, you call the police on March 19th. You did not wait almost three and a half weeks until William comes back to the garage. He'd been there three times, the night of the accident, the night of the vacuum cleaner incident, and the night that he was killed. And the two times that he went back to the garage, it was in response to my mother and his girlfriend having visited earlier in the day, having been treated in a particular way on mm-hmm. uh, in March, and having been followed home on April seventh, which is a which is a detail that's just sort of a throwaway line of the detective, who I think believes that he is doing a very good job, right? But when you hear when 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 you step back and you listen, it's just like something here doesn't make sense. There, this this at least rises to the very low standard 
of probable cause. Um, and that's what one of the things that David Breen, the former assistant DA, um, who I interview in the film, explains. You know, he explains that it's not, you know, to a moral certainty beyond a reasonable doubt, which is the standard for a trial jury, right? Because someone's freedom is at stake in a, in a trial jury. It's probable cause, right? Which he's, which if you watch in the film, he lowers his hand, right? So in that, in that, in the distance between the top of his forehead and, you know, sort of just below his, his, his hip is, is the distance, you know, between certainty and maybe. And the grand jury in my brother's case decided that there wasn't even maybe. And I think that something very wrong happened there. In the film, there is a kind of vague intimation that something was happening in that garage and that the people who were involved in that garage may have had connections to police or it's a, it, in my memory of having seen the film eight months ago, it, it, it's left very vague. And I wonder if you've gotten any more clues to the subtext of what was happening in that neighborhood. Mm -hmm. I, I know exactly what was, what was happening. Um, I've, I've interviewed um, a former employee who's not Mark Riley um, of that, of that garage. Um, and I've also um, compiled a, a very easily found in public records, um, you know, criminal history um, of the young man who owned that garage, who has um, not coincidentally um, essentially lived a life of crime since he was 17 years old. Hmm. Um, a few months ago, he he pled in some in some unbelievably ridiculous um, plea deal. He created a, an environmental catastrophe um, by dumping hundreds of thousands of tons of toxic uh, construction material all over uh, Roberto Clemente Park in Brentwood um, at a construction storage site in my town. His construction company also used it as landfill um, for um, a development of veterans' homes. And, you know, the beginning of this case was, you know, almost 100 counts of different criminal charges against him and his father and his mother and his sister that got pled down to, I don't know, a handful of counts in one year in jail and getting to clean up his own mess. So, um, so that raises a question: like, what, Why does this guy get to walk away from so many things? Well, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I don't actually um, go into into details about what I know. I, I leave it as a suggestion in the film deliberately because I think that if you identify a single person. It's too easy to say, oh, it's just this family. It's just their influence. It's just their connections. It's just who they know. As opposed to, wait, we have a structural problem here. We have a larger issue here. It's not just about this family. It's about the way that William William was criminalized, mm. right? It's, it's about the, 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 the complete um, dissociation between how he was described and what his body was actually like. The number of times he's described as a big guy, right? You would think that he was like the Incredible Hulk. Mm. William was five feet, eight inches tall and described by the coroner as obese. So you begin to see how regardless of who was in the car outside of my parents' home, regardless of who was on the other end of the phone, regardless of who was in the car that that um, arrived at the garage, that there is an extra judicial 
um, force at work that has both to do with perception and the way that race influences perception and that has to do with the ease with which black lives can be taken um, both in 1992 and unfortunately uh, today. I want to thank Yancey Ford for joining me. His film Strong Island is now streaming on Netflix. Our interview was recorded in August at the School of Visual Arts in the MFA Social Documentary Department. If you enjoy Pure Nonfiction, I invite you to listen to our short-form podcast, Documentary of the Week, produced by WNYC. Every Friday, we take two minutes to recommend a new documentary. You can subscribe to Documentary of the Week for free on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Explore the archives to find over 100 documentary recommendations. For more information, visit wnyc.org slash docs. Thanks to the Pure Nonfiction team, series producer Sarah Modo, sound mixer Tom Micah, web designer Cross Strategy, and social media master Jordan Smith. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at T-H-O-M Powers. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net. 